Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme, we've got John Paul, as always, taking your calls at 1850 333 103. You can text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Very much welcome your thoughts and uh, comments on the Mother and Baby Home Commission report, which was finally... Goodness me, we've wasted long enough for this. It finally was published uh, yesterday and I am very aware as we speak about it today on the programme that there will be people listening to us who are very much affected by this report and people who would have uh, gone into one of these mother and baby homes uh, to have a baby. There's also children that were adopted uh, from these mother and baby homes. There are so many people affected by this uh, report. I, and I haven't read all of the report. It's um, almost three pages long. I I did my best to get through as much of it as I could yesterday. Uh, And in the end, I actually stopped because it's just such a harrowing read, particularly the testimonies of the girls, uh, of the the women who were, and many of them were girls, young girls at the time, and what they spoke about, what happened uh, to them. And God, the man's inhumanity to man. And women because it was women there was nuns and their cruelty to other women it just defies logic it's you know and I know it's from a different era even though the report goes right up to the 1990s I mean the Besber mother and baby home closed in at 1994 but some of the darkest parts would have been back in the you know, the women talking about what happened to them in the 40s, 50s and, and 60s, even to the 70s. It's just, it's shocking. I want to say congratulations to everybody involved in the Cork Examiner because their front page today would just stop you in your tracks. I, I had a, saw a screen grab of it last night online. and But it's to see it in the flesh. It's to actually pick up the paper this morning and see it. I mean, you know, the Irish Examiner with the long format. It's a big, big paper. And what they have done on their front page is they have reproduced the 923 babies who died in Besber from when it was opened in the 20s right through to the 90s. And just in the middle, they just say May they rest in peace and you can look down through all of and it's clear enough for you to sit if you want to spend time today and say their names, call out the names, read the names of these little babies who did nothing wrong except that their mother wasn't married and their mothers ended up in one of these mother and baby homes and in this particular case here in Cork it's the one in Besber. Just looking down through 
the little babies, the little lives last. Mary Ryan, 11 weeks old, died on the 16th of January 1932. Mary O'Keefe, four months old, died 21st of February 1935. Michael Cochran, three months old, died the 12th of May 1935. Then into the 40s, Patrick Gleeson, 11 hours, died on the 9th of May 1944. Philomena Daly, one month old, died the 20th of July 1944. Kevin Dalton, six weeks old, died the 18th of April 1947. And into the 50s, Kevin Kelleher, 15 hours, died on the 12th of May 1957. Joseph Finn, two days old, died on the 26th of March 1959. And on and on the list goes up into the 70s. And what changes when you get into the 70s is you don't get the full names of the little babies. You get like John Kevin G., one day, 20 hours and 35 minutes. And that incredible detail died 29th of April 1975. Fergal M., eight months old, died on the 16th of January 1978. And then up into the 80s, Barry K., four months old, died on the 3rd of April 1983. And then into the 90s, Paula M., one year, two months, died on the 28th of January in Besborough in 1990. And the last baby to be registered as having died at Besborough was Zoe B. She was two days old and she died on the 10th of August 1994. My goodness, it's just, as I say, the examiner decided to reproduce all of those names just in memory of those little babies who died. And they're just the ones who died in uh, Besborough because we know they were up the the Commission of Investigation found uh, around 9,000 children would have died in mother and baby homes. And you break that down, that's 15% of all of the children who were born in these mother and baby homes, 15% of them died. The report says that the very high mortality rates in these homes in general were known to local and national authorities at the time and were recorded in official publications. So people can't say we didn't know what was going on. I mean, with a lot of the industrial schools, people said we knew there was an industrial school in our town, but we never knew the cruelty that was going on. Same with the Magdalene laundries. People at the time defended it, saying we knew that there was these laundries. We knew that the nuns were running them. We never knew the cruelty was going on. We never realised that these women were working in there and that they were not being paid. The same can't be said about the mother and baby at homes locally and nationally. They knew uh, what was going on. The death rate among illegitimate, I just hate that word, the death rate among illegitimate children was always considerably higher than among legitimate children, but it was higher still in mother and baby homes. And nobody decided to stand up and say, why? Why is this happening? And make this stop. It gave the example that the death rate among infants in mother and baby homes was almost twice that of the national the nat- the national average for legitimate children and that was just in the years from 1945 to 1946 and when you look at Besborough which I suppose is the one we focus on the most and I, and I know certainly when I went to look at the report yesterday it was Besborough where I went to try to get as much information as as I could it was opened in 1922 and it remained open until uh, 1998 during that time 9,768 women went into Besborough uh, and the length of their stay varied. They talk about the living conditions up until the 1970s. They were described as basic. 
but they were better than the county homes. I mean, you think the mother and baby homes were bad, the county homes were even worse. But after the 70s, Besber, the conditions did improve. And then when you look at the infant deaths, the 923 whose names are in front of the Irish Examiner uh, today. In 1934, the highest recorded infant mortality rate in mother and baby homes was in, was in Besber in that year. And in 1943, Three out of every four children born in Besber died. Just think about that. In one year, 1943, three out of every four children died uh, that year. And then, of course, the burials, which is the big shame when it comes to Besber. They failed to keep a register and the burial location of the majority of children still to this day are unknown. Now, the Taoiseach has called on the religious orders associated with the mother and baby home to make a financial contribution to, we know there's going to be a redress scheme for the survivors. The Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes report, it's also been sent to the Director of Public Prosecutions for a review. And I know that Joan Burton, you know, the former Taoiseach to Joan Burton, she was born in a mother and baby home. She actually was one, she reckons she was one of the children that was due for, to go to either America or Canada because she, fa- she has from her file a passport and a visa for America and for Canada. Now something happened and she wasn't adopted to either America or to Canada. And as she says herself, she was very blessed and very lucky that she ended up with the Burtons who were her adoptive family and she had a lovely life uh, with them. But she came out even before the report came out and said, because we now know that when you look into this report, there was girls, little girls as young as 12 ended up in these mother and baby homes. But there was a percentage under the age of 18 and the Gardaí were never involved at, at the time. So there are, there are questions. There are certainly questions to be asked and it'll be interesting to see what the Director of Public Prosecution makes of it. It's been sent, as I say, for a, a review. Speaking yesterday at the launch of the report, the Taoiseach said the Gardaí could obviously pursue some of the issues outlined in the Commission's investigation, even though obviously there's a significant lapse of uh, time. He specifically highlighted that many of the women in the homes were under the age of consent when they became pregnant. The Taoiseach will today make a state apology in the Dáil to the survivors of the mother and baby homes. Yesterday, Michal Martin said the investigation into the 18 institutions for unmarried mothers opened up a window to the deeply misogynistic culture in Ireland where there was serious endemic discrimination against women. And he said, we did this to ourselves as a society. We treated women exceptionally badly. We treated children exceptionally badly. And of course, remember, this investigation has taken five years to get us to where we are now with the final publication yesterday. It was led by Justice Yvonne Murray. She found the responsibility for the harsh treatment endured by these women. She says it rests mainly with the fathers of their children and their own immediate family. But she does say it was also supported by this by the state and by the church. The report details how 57,000 children were born in mother and baby uh, homes and of the 57,000 children, 9,000 died 
while in the care of uh, the nuns. And at least 1,638 children from the homes investigated were put up for international adoption. Now, the vast majority of them did end up in the US. Their report includes allegations that significant money was exchanged between church authorities and the adoptive parents. But the Commission was unable to prove or disprove the veracity of the claim. At least seven vaccine trials were also carried out in the homes without any consent. But I know on the mother, on the money side of it, and there seems to be no records. If there was records, they've been destroyed. But it does, there's a lot of evidence to show, uh, or anecdotal evidence to show, that the very wealthy Americans were almost buying the children from the Irish adoptive adoption homes and I know in the report one of the women who had a baby in one of the baby homes says she remembers one of her jobs was to count money and it was money that was foreign to her and she now realises it was dollars and it was in tin boxes. It was just hard cash but no questions asked and what does it say the report says that they couldn't find out any evidence they couldn't get anything from the nuns to prove that money did exchange uh, hands. And as, as I mentioned at the outset, I am conscious and aware that people are being deeply affected by this report. And please know that there are counselling services available. Connect, for example, is a counselling, it provides telephone counselling and support for survivors of abuse. Now, they normally are only open Wednesdays to Sundays in the evening from 6 to 10, but they're going to be open from 2 p.m. on the weekends. I don't know for how many weekends, but certainly this weekend, they'll be open from 2 p.m. through until 10. And also, Monday and Tuesdays are going to open between 6 and 10 and it's a free phone number at 1-800-477-477 that's 1-800-477-477 and Bernardo's also have have a special therapeutic service for adopted adults and their birth families they have a Cork number 021 2038 005-021-2038-005 and please reach out if you're struggling today because of what you've read in any of the report online or anything that you're reading in the papers today and talking about reading there's so much in the papers today one of the strongest pieces and something that I wish I had written it. I, I said this sums up exactly how I feel and it is written by Nicola Anderson in a comment piece in the Irish Examiner and she talks about in the harrowing personal stories of how desperate Irish women were forced to enter in what was unwelcoming doors of these mother and baby homes. The partners the fathers, the partners in the pregnancy are cast as just mere bit players. The men at the heart of this wide ranging tragedy that spanned decades featured merely as the shadowy instigators of misfortune before being allowed to disappear into the background unseen and largely untraceable in what was a deeply conservative Ireland that pre- obviously predated contraception and where parish priests sometimes turned up at dance halls, the ballroom of romance to ensure the couples weren't dancing too closely together. Punishment fell on the women for falling pregnant and for failing to safeguard their chastity. The attitude at the time allowed the fathers of these children, meanwhile, the permission to get on with the rest of their lives in parallel with the suffering of the women and the suffering of the children who were left to, de- to deal with the devastating lifelong uh, consequences. Respectability trumped all. Becoming a mother outside of wedlock carried stigma. 
being an illegitimate child carried stigma. Being a father outside of wedlock is not an expression that any of us are familiar with. And it's the one thing. And again, and I know the Commission points to the fathers, but it's just it gets a mention that they were, you know, responsible and the families of the young girls. But nothing has ever been done about about them. They're never taken to task. They were never humiliated the way the women were. And when you're reading down through the report, particularly when you look at the amount under the age of uh, 18, I think, but did I see 11 percent under the 18, eight, under the age of 18? Some were as young as 11. Some of those girls became pregnant through rape. Some of them became pregnant through incest. And again, that was never questioned. Garthy were never uh, called in. And it was the girl's fault because she became pregnant, even though she had been raped or even though it was the pregnancy was the result of incest. And one of the women speaking to the commission said she had been raped and she went to her local parish priest to tell her parish priest what had happened. And he sexually abused her and then sent her off to a mother and baby home where she received dreadful abuse from the nuns who blamed her and, you know, reports of what it was like when they when they gave birth of nuns in their face, no pain relief, nuns in their face telling them, well, you enjoyed yourself nine months ago. This is your punishment for your enjoyment nine months ago. Just horrific. Absolutely. Probably of all of the reports that have come out over the years, it's the one I think that certainly has affected me uh, the most. Your thoughts? Uh, welcome some of your thoughts on the Commission of Investigation into the Mother and Baby Homes. Tina says the report keeps mentioning unmarried mothers and illegitimate children. Children. These terms are from the 50s. Enraged, says uh, Tina. Yeah, and they're words that we don't use today and hopefully uh, the younger generation today don't even realise what we're talking about. They were mothers, you know, just because they didn't have a ring on their finger or because they, they, they didn't have a certificate or they hadn't been walked up an aisle of their local church. They were still mothers. But of course, for the purpose of this report, they have to use, that term has to be used. But yes, uh, Tina, I can understand why you, you're enraged that these terms are even been used. Noreen says a lot of people picking up on the same thing that I picked up on to do with the fathers. You know, Noreen says, where were the fathers? Why not blame? Why not put any of the blame on the fathers who made these girls pregnant? All those fathers were covered up and got no blame at all. The father's fam- father family should also have been involved. A lot of these men were from good, wealthy families. We can blame the church, we can blame the state, we can blame society, but at the end of the day, the fathers of these babies must be held to account and must take a lot of the blame for it as well. And you are right about many of the men coming from good, wealthy families. There was one story in the Commission report of a girl who got pregnant by a TD and she turned up at Leinster House and it was the the porter of Leinster House realised she was going to cause trouble for the TD who was a married man and she got taken off straight away to a mother and baby home to cover it up very quickly. Somebody asked this morning, Tricia, listening to you about the baby homes, it was pure genocide. Are these people going to be held for war crimes? That's what it was. It was pure murder. Don't mind our, don't mind our government saying sorry. You... They were all brainwashed between church and uh, state. It was pure evil and rotten what happened to those women. Jim says, Patricia, hearing what happened in those mother and baby homes would make you question your Christianity and belief in God when you hear the cruel things the nuns did to those poor girls, like taunting them when they were giving birth, when they wanted pain relief, saying you've had your fun, you're paying for it now. And some girls may be pregnant as a result of rape or incest and not their fault. It was murder and how so many 
died in these homes is a scandal and how it was left to go on for so long is absolutely baffling to think the nuns then were profiting from the sale of the babies. It's a disgrace. May all of those little babies rest in peace, says uh, Jim. And uh, hi, uh, Patricia, some of these girls were under the age of consent. Some of the dads need to be put in the docks and questioned by a ban- bar- barrister and made to cough up money towards the uh, redress. Uh, thank you for bringing up the um, mentioning the fathers and how blame lies with the uh, fathers. Hi, Patricia, says another uh, texter. Young girls paid a very, very heavy price. And again, making the point, what about the dads? They got off scot-free. It is so sad. 1850-333-103 It's an issue we will be returning to later on in the programme. I know in the after 11 we're going to be speaking with the wonderful Catherine Corliss, the woman who, if there could be the highest award in the land, I think Catherine Corliss should get at the social historian for it was because what she started to expose, what was what had happened in Tume, it was because of her we have this commission report uh, today. So we'll speak with uh, Catherine at about 20 past half past 11 uh, today. John Paul taking your calls 1850 333103 text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103 with McCroom Motors leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See McCroomMotors.com. Now, former Lord Mayor, uh, Councillor McFinn, has written to the Taoiseach and to the Minister for Education with an eight-point plan that he believes could bring students back into a structured learning programme during this pandemic. Independent Councillor McFinn joins me with his uh, thoughts. Good morning to you, Mick. Uh, good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well, and, and you're welcome uh, to the programme. Now, firstly, you're, you're coming at this from your experience in education. You've been on boards of, of management. Yeah, well, I suppose more so than that, I worked uh, with a group called the School Completion Programme for 10 years, which was working with uh, nine schools in the city, uh, DESH schools. Uh, and I worked with students, with teachers, you know, with uh, everyone associated with school communities. And following that, then, uh, I'm a member of two uh, national school boards and one secondary school okay. board. So, you know, it, it's my background in education, working maybe for about 14 years at Portland School. And OK, I that's, that's where it's coming from. Now, firstly, yeah. was it the correct decision not to reopen the schools this week, do you believe? Absol- absolutely. And I mean, that's something like this, this idea as well, this plan was sent in in advance of the of the planned reopening of schools. And I think, you know, we must, the first and foremost in the thoughts here has to be the fact that we're in the middle of a public health pandemic. And I think it was absolutely the right call not to go, not to return to school this week. If you just look at the numbers that have been, you know, increasing in recent days, and yesterday maybe showed a slight drop in the COVID um, numbers. But if you look at the numbers attending school, you know, we've over a million students. We have something in the region of 60,000 teachers alone, which doesn't include school staffs or SNAs. And, to, you know, to send that amount of people back into a system with the numbers escalating all the time, to me, would have been a huge mistake. And then it's the it, movement of all of those people in the morning, you know, going to school and then and then coming home uh, in, in, the, in the evening. Now, the government are saying that schools, they're talking about schools reopening on the 1st of, of February. You would go further in your plan and say, leave the schools closed until after 
the February midterm break. Is, is that your thinking? Yeah, and again, this would have this would have been my my opinion going back two weeks. I think you know that a lot of our uh, decision making at national level is almost like knee jerk reaction, and we're looking at it in too narrow a window. I think we need to look at it in a wider context, and that was my suggestion before Christmas even was to cancel school until after the February midterm break because that would have given us six weeks, you know, to try and break the, the or reduce the numbers of COVID by restricting people at home. Now, again, as, as I said to somebody uh, in another station yesterday, every point on this plan creates other problems and that's why it requires a kind of a whole-of-government response because if you have, you know, working parents that, you know, can stay at home or, you know, cost the money to stay at home, that needs to be addressed. But I think the February midterm break was was that point that I felt was the most realistic at that stage. And now, again, you know, it depends on numbers. That could have to be pushed out again. But it also, I think, when I was reading through your your plan, it would give some certainty. There's there's any parent I'm speaking to who who has children at home, and when you say, "Oh, yeah, first of February," they're saying, "Oh, yeah, well, will it happen on the first of February?" It's this level of uncertainty as to when schools will reopen, and that doesn't help. No, it doesn't, and it's and it certainly doesn't help. Um, you know, parents of students with special needs, you know, who, who require maybe more certainty, um, and that's why I think we just need to look at it a small bit more longer term. Um, and if if a call was made, look, we're going to revisit this in February. We're going to revisit this maybe in March. And at least parents then know that it's not going to change on a week to week basis. And I think that has been part of the problem. Uh, that we like this is not going to go away overnight. It's with us for another number of months. The vaccination program, then, you know, I know that obviously frontline staff like nursing staff and nursing homes and, and older people are priority, but I haven't seen anywhere, you know, a plan to roll this out at the schools. And I think that needs to go hand in hand with the plan to reopen schools fully. So, what are you saying? Vaccinate all of the staff, teachers, SNAs, any of the staff again, in the school? Yeah, well, I suppose what I was saying is that obviously there are lines of priority, but there needs to be a plan to say when those frontline teaching staff uh, need to be vaccinated. And my, my idea here was that if you're going to progress, if these are all interlinked, if you're going to progress with state exams during the summer, and I, I think there's no way it's going to happen in June, I think it has to be July or August, if it's going to be contemplated, that you start then with secondary school teachers or final year students in the vaccination programme and you walk backwards then towards your early care over time so that by September, October, you're in a position where your school staff, they are frontline staff, they're in you know classrooms of anything up from 20 up to 35 students that they then would be vaccinated by September and you're looking at this time next year then that you have some degree of normality and I think it will take that long. And would you prioritise teachers in special needs schools? Yes, I think so. I think that that needs to go again, that needs to happen. Um, you know, you're hearing stories of parents uh, you know, I, I know schools in, in Cork City and indeed in Cork County where, um, you know, individual students with disabilities across various, you know, uh, spectrums um, require schooling, require the social, socialisation. You know, they require the uh, the, the special the special um, abilities of teachers to, for their students to progress and for their, their sons and daughters. Well, it's to, more than just education for a special needs child. It's a lot yeah, more than so just there's so many more resources uh, available to them uh, in the school that's all been 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 taken away away from them. Okay, the the leaving cert students, you have a plan here where you would bring them back a little bit earlier than the rest of the school. 
Yeah, well, I suppose the idea again here was that you bring them back maybe during February midterm, maybe just to give them a bit of a head start, and then you're looking maybe at doing the pre's in April. Now, I have seen calls for the state exam to be called, uh, to be cancelled, sorry, um, and, you know, for, for, for the predictive marking to be brought in. The issue with that, again, having spoken to some of the schools, is that they reckon that not enough exams have been carried out for this cohort because if you remember last year, the, fifth, this, the current six years are final year students. Uh, last year was disrupted as well. Um, so it's a bit more difficult to do the predictive grading and predictive marking than it was for the for, we'll say, last year's... The class uh, of 2020. Year. Well, the class Correct. of 2020 had their mocks done. When the schools when the schools closed, but they also had their fifth year done. Yeah, a full um, fifth, fifth year. year exam. Yeah. Whereas the the problem with the current crop is that the fifth year was disrupted, and obviously the final year is disrupted, and the mocks, um, you know, haven't been done. So I think again that needs to be pushed out maybe to April, and maybe there's, there's a suggestion or there was there was an idea that you could have your mocks as you know maybe forty percent of your final exam in this current year. And that you're, if you if they do have the leaving cert proper, that represents sixty percent, and that you know your your results are calculated as an average of those two exams, mm. um, you know, and that might be an option. And then, what, what, how would that then affect students accessing third level education this year, or PLC courses, or apprenticeships, or whatever they want to do on leaving school? Yeah, well, I think that process, and again, that's in, that's in my plan as well, that process needs to be obviously pushed further out again into the year. Everything has a knock-on effect. But I think, you know, it's particularly when you look at a third level and post-leaving uh, courses, I think third level needs to step up here as well. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a new era. It's, it's a new climate. And I think maybe, you know, interviews for, for courses alongside marking maybe might need to be introduced. And again, you know, that's a maybe more long-term solution as well. When you consider that up to 40% of first-year students in uh, third level actually give up their courses. So a lot of the courses aren't suitable for them. You know, they, they may get the, the marks and the CEO points. But when it comes to it, they're not suited. So maybe an interview process might be an additional kind of filter here for for, for young people um, in their exam years so that it's not just on their exam results, it's also on an interview basis with their third-level uh, institutions or their post-leavings or courses to see if they if they can make the grade for... Yeah, and uh, some, some people have been critical of the fact of the way we select students to go on to third level, that it is purely three hours of an exam, you know, and... and whatever it is, six exams and, and we mark it on that, There's, there has been a, a level of criticism. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's thinking outside the box uh, a, a little bit, which I think is what uh, we need to do. And then on the primary school children, many of the parents today are listening to us with the remote learning uh, going on. You think there are appropriate resources should be made available? Well, again, you know, like, I suppose in, that's again in the context, context of, of, of parents, working parents have this day at home. Um, you know, if you're going to close the school, it's going to have a knock-on effect. And those parents need, you know, to be resourced to find to be financed to stay at home. I and mean, as I said, the Minister for Public Expenditure, uh, Minister McGrath, has said that there are resources available for this. So if you do uh, keep the, the schools closed until midterm, um, you know that has to be planned and it has to be managed by government in, from other directions as well. And it's very difficult for parents. I mean, I think parents do appreciate uh, more, perhaps the role of teachers in their sons or daughters' lives because, as you said, it's not just education in school, it's the socialisation, it's life skills. You know, it's a huge amount of work done in schools uh, by teaching staff, by school management, by, you know, school support staff. And that school environment, we, we all, I think we all want to get back to that as soon as possible. Mm. But what has to be foremost in our thoughts here 
is that we're in a public health pandemic and I'm not sure it's, you know, it's still, to me, it's still a good bit away from being able to go back in a safe environment. And I think I would point out that schools have done a fantastic job in making schools uh, safe, you know, with all their cleaning environments and hygienic environments. But to me, the number's still going up. That needs to come down before we, we even consider um, opening the doors of the schools again. Do you think remote learning is working better this time around, that schools learn so much from the what, the first lockdown it came so quickly and remote learning was something that none of us had experienced before? Did they learn a lot between March and June and are they doing it better, do you believe, this time yeah, around? Yeah, I, I, I think they are. Indeed. I think, you know, they have to be really, as it goes forward, I think people learn more about more platforms. Uh, you know, platforms that are available to teachers and to students. One of the concerns I had, um, you know, in first schools in the city and county was the whole access of, or the whole problem of access to IT and access to connectivity. Uh, a bit of work was done by government to, to give credit, you know, to kind of look at that IT device and provide, um, you know, funding for laptops and devices and connectivity. So I think that has improved. I mean, a couple of months, I mean, this time last year, we would have said this was impossible from an education point of view, from a work point of view, that you couldn't work from home, that you couldn't do remote learning. No, we've had to do it. We're equipped to do it. Are we fully equipped? No, but we're certainly better equipped this time around than we were the That's last good. time. And I'm sure that will develop over time. Okay. As well. All right, listen, uh, Mick, did you get any response, by the way, from uh, uh, the Taoiseach not, of the Minister for Education? Not yet. I just got an okay. acknowledgement from the Minister's office on uh, Monday that she, that she received it and will we not consider it, but that, that's it so okay. far. But okay, keep us, that, keep us posted. I will, of course. I will, okay. of course. Listen, thanks for that and stay safe, Mick, and thanks for joining thanks us. Bye-bye. That Bye. is uh, Independent uh, City Councillor, former Lord Mayor, Councillor Mick Finn, 1850 333 103. Court today on C103. With McCroom Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See McCroomMotors.com. Garthi are continuing to investigate the discovery of human remains near an old railway line in Middleton last week and they hope to identify the person soon. With more on the story, I'm joined by Paul Byrne, Southern Correspondent with Virgin Media News. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome to the programme. I suppose when, just take me back to last week, when and how were these remains discovered? Uh, we're going back to the 5th of January, uh, sometime in the afternoon. Uh, men were carrying out work on the uh, the Middleton to Yall Greenway. And in an area uh, very close to Dungorny, uh, the workmen discovered a skull. Now, work stopped immediately and these people contacted Gardaí. Gardaí then moved in and uh, carried out a preliminary examination. At that stage, they were thinking the skull was that of a man. And obviously, when Gardaí uh, cordon off an area, you know, rumours start to circulate and stories grow legs. So uh, I suppose human nature being human nature, people were uh, second guessing and word spread like wildfire. And then names started to uh, emerge. And of course, the one name that kept emerging was that it was the body of Tina Satchwell. But Gardaí were still um, insistent at the time, insisting at the time that it was a skull of a male. Because I, I, read, I read reports that at one stage they were thinking that it was the remains of uh, a British soldier, maybe a black and tan. That's right, but the public were telling everybody, everybody on the street were saying that it was that of Tina Satchel, but the, the initial uh, thoughts among investigators was that it could belong to um, a, a member of the Black and Tans. But soon after the discovery then, uh, within, say, 24 hours, 
they were beginning to feel that the skull was that of a woman. And on further examination, Superintendent Adrian Gamble, who's head of the East Cork Division, um, he launched a full investigation. They carried out further digs and then there was a lot more of uh, the remains were found. It was then discovered that it was, the, the remains were those of a female. And uh, at this stage, they've gathered the best part of uh, the, the entire skeletal remains. Do we know, did Margaret Bolster, when she did her post-mortem, did she give any indication as to how long the body might have been there? Uh, yeah, they also brought in experts, um, you know, who, who would um, be able to tell by the, the soil and, and what have you like that. And maybe the, the um, so they're thinking that the body, the remains were there for between one and five years. And the remains are those of a 60, a woman no older than 65. Um, so therefore it couldn't be, it couldn't be Tina Satchel because she's only in her 40s, isn't she? Tina was 47, yeah. or is 47 when she went, went was 47 when she went missing yeah, in March okay. of uh, 2017. Um, now, a lot of people were also saying that, you know, if somebody that age had arthritis or, you know, wear and tear in bones, that the, the, the bones could look older or appear to be older. But uh, I, I won't say they've ruled out that it's Tina Satchwell at this stage but uh, you know all indications are that it's not really um, Okay but it's it's a female a a female possibly around 65 Yeah 60, 65 no older than 65 Was there any other identifiable objects jewellery clothing handbag anything like that found around the body? Yeah there was some clothing found and there was a crucifix found Um, the clothing I understand and well, there was a nightdress and uh, underwear. And again, it indicates that the nightdress and the underwear were that, you know, worn by somebody maybe in their late, 50, late 60s, okay. uh, somebody pushing on in life, as it were. Um, so, you know, that, that helped uh, maybe added to the fact that they believed that this person was in their late 60s when they, when they died. But the crucifix as well. Now, people were posting photographs of Tina Satchwell on social media. And in one of those uh, photographs, she was wearing a crucifix. But the crucifix found um, at the remains at the site, uh, it, it's not, it doesn't match any of the crucifix that isn't, Tina Satchwell was Isn't wearing. all of that speculation very unfair on Richard, her husband? It must be heartbreaking. Um, I mean, the man is under enormous pressure. Uh, he was notified, obviously, as soon as they discovered that the remains were that of a female. Uh, the Garda liaison officer did contact Richard. Uh, with, it's part of the investigation, it's part of the course, that they would say, look, the remains have been found. Uh, he has been informed. He's been kept updated. But obviously, that if you know his his wife's photograph is again popping up in social media, yeah, and people tough. are saying it's Tina, it's Tina. It's it's tough. Yeah, it's, very it's very, very tough. And I mean, because he's waiting mm-hmm. for the day that she walks back in the front door. I mean, the last thing he wants to even contemplate that there are remains found that could belong to her. Yeah, I mean, Richard from day one said um, he she'll be back. She, yeah. He firmly believes that she's alive, that she's gone off, and. Um, you know, he, he said he knows Tina better than anyone and obviously he was married to her for, for many years and uh, he's still waiting for her to come home. So, um, yeah. I okay, so what... what, what the, the rumours don't help him. So what, are the Gardaí now going through the records? I mean, have many women gone missing in the East Cork area in, I suppose, what, the last three decades? Yeah, well, from what I know is there's just one uh, female on the 
missing persons data base in the East Cork Athena, and that that is Tina Satchwell. Um, but the DNA was sent off for um, to be analysed last Friday. It could be a week or two before they match it to anybody who may be or may match it to anybody who's on the missing persons uh, database. We just don't know. Everybody is speculating. No, I must say it's 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 a very tight investigation from the Garda's point of view, and and, and rightly so. I mean, they can't be banding names around or anything like that for, you know, they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or upset anyone and, you know, they're playing their cards very close to their chest. So, um, you know, when the time is right, they will let us know and let the public know mm. how the investigation is going. Is the um, area still sealed off, Paul? It is. Is it? it is. Okay. It's All still right. sealed okay. off and it will remain sealed off, I reckon, until um, they come back with the, the, the results of the post-mortem or the... Um, the, 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 DNA. the DNA, the DNA. Okay, yeah. all right. And of course, you know, when when I'm saying a woman from the East Cork area, it doesn't necessarily she may, she doesn't have to have been from the East Cork area. She could have no. been from anywhere else. No, I mean, again, people are saying like, you know, was it somebody who was? I, I'm just saying, was it somebody who was living rough? We yeah. don't know. Yeah. Was it somebody who was out walking, um, a tourist who fell? You know, um, there's a there's a a, a load of options there. And, um, you know, you can speculate till the cows come home, but um, DNA doesn't lie. And I suppose we won't have an answer until we get the results. And when do we expect the results of the DNA? Some people are saying it could take a week or two. Oh, OK. OK. All right, uh, Paul, listen, thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning to you. That is uh, Paul Byrne, who is the Southern Correspondent with uh, Virgin Media News. 1850-333-103. Just on vaccines, by the way, Anne was on to say, Patricia, when will people over the age of 70 living at home, not living in residential care, not living in a nursing home, when can they expect to get the vaccine? I am caring for my elderly parents, so I feel I need the vaccine early as well. When will I, as a carer, be on that list? My parents would prefer to get the Pfizer vaccine as it is 90% uh, effective I think it's actually 95 for the for the Pfizer va- vaccine. I would suggest um, that you get on to your parents GP and find out because at the moment on the sequencing, the, you know, the HSE are going into the nursing homes, they're going into residential uh, care but I imagine when we get to enough vaccines within this country to start giving it out to people over the age of 70, to the general population, I imagine that's going to be done through your GP. So I would suggest getting on to your parents' GP and see do they have any idea when they expect vaccines to be available for those who are living at home. They are certainly on the list of, there's a sequencing list, I think 15 groups, and they're certainly on that uh, list and they're working through it, but they're still working through the nursing homes at the moment. 1850-333-103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text on WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Court today on C103 with McCroom Motors leading the way for Toyota hybrids the place to order your 211 Toyota see McCroomMotors.com You're listening to Cork Today on Replay phone and text lines are currently closed before we get to some of your thoughts uh, still coming in about the Commission of Investigation and it is in this hour we're going to be speaking with uh, Catherine Cordes before that just other issues that are coming up on the programme John Paul says there uh, he's had a number of calls already this morning about people needing to update their driving licence and renew their driving licence and then I got a text in from Jackie to say Patricia you mentioned on the programme uh, yesterday that people over the age of 70 got an extension to the time they were 
be exempt from doing a medical cert for a driving licence until the end of June. Yes, the RSA announced that yesterday. Well, says Jackie, I tried online today to apply for a driving licence for my husband. I was able to proceed so far and after answering several medical questions, it came up that I needed a medical certificate and I wasn't able to proceed any further. Why does this happen if a medical cert is not now needed until June? Well, when we got onto the RSA and we asked them about the over 70s, they said that a postal application process has been rolled out for the over 70s who are renewing their licence and renewal packs will be issued to all eligible applicants. So I don't know when your husband's driving licence is up and are you just trying to get in in advance? Is it up in, in the next week or two? But hang in there, wait for this postal application and if you don't receive a postal application and you're getting close to the date of the driving licence running out, I would suggest getting onto the RSA but that's what they tell us. They're sending out a postal application for anybody over the age of seven uh, or the age of 70 and it is a renewal pack. And then for other people who are on to us saying is there is there an extension on driver's licence, a general one for people under the age of 70? There isn't. If your driving licence is up, you need to renew your driving licence. There's no extension uh, for driving licences in place. The only extension is on the medical cert for the over 70s, but they still have to apply for their driving licence. So there's three methods of applications online for those who've got a PSC and a verified mygov.ie account NDLS offices where it's by appointment only and all necessary precautions are in place in accordance with government government guidelines and then obviously the postal application for the over 70 so you still need to uh, renew your driving licence and then people have been interested about the truck licence and is there an exemption to them for the medical cert and the RSA have come back to us saying that the truck and bus licence holders must always present a medical certificate. These are higher medical standards for drivers of these vehicles. The previous exemptions never included this category so there's no change here either. So if you're a bus or a truck you do need to get a medical cert that I'm assuming you get from your uh, GP. 1850 We were discussing the opening of schools in the last hour with uh, Councillor McFinn. Uh, Glenn on Twitter at C103 Cork says schools are perfectly safe. Children need to return to the classrooms ASAP. This remote learning nonsense cannot continue, according to uh, Glenn. I don't know how parents who are doing the remote learning, uh, how parents are getting on. I know certainly we're only into day three. And certainly back in March when the schools closed and we went to remote learning and homeschooling, there was an initial everybody settled in at the beginning, but it took was after a few weeks. I think the parents started to find it extremely tricky at the moment. Is it the same now? If you have a story to share with us, share with you, share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Because I do think in the main, certainly from what I'm hearing from family members and friends of mine that have children, a lot are saying that the schools are reacting very differently to the way they reacted back back in March. A lot of them are certainly learned a lot from the first lockdown. I'm hearing a lot more about Zoom classes going on and videos being sent home to children to show them how to do a particular thing. And it's not just been left to parents. I mean, certainly back in March, some of the frustration with the first lockdown was when on a Monday morning, a parent would open up an email to find this is what your son or daughter needs to do for the rest of the week with no instruction around it. Just get them to do in the workbook from page 10 to page 19 and, you know, no help attached. That's seems to have changed certainly from what I'm hearing 
not saying that's the case in all schools but certainly for what I'm hearing so far and we're only up to a day three of it. 1850-333-103 Now back to the uh, Commission of Investigation into the Mother and Baby Homes. Uh, when I mentioned fathers and the role that fathers played I mean in how these girls got pregnant they didn't get pregnant on their own it does take two to tango and all of that. Oliver says fair play Patricia for highlighting the role of fathers of these children. It's a thing that was never done fathers or somebody said we never spoke about unmarried fathers it's not a thing it's just never got spoken about Uh, Oliver said his wife and himself often speak about it and many men just went off into the sunset absolutely no responsibility well done to all involved in this report says Oliver and Mary wants to know is there any one man out there listening to this programme today that would have been involved that would have had a relationship with a woman that ended up pregnant and the woman ended up in one of these mother and baby homes and a man who didn't step up to his responsibility at the time. Is there anyone out there now who'd like to come forward and explain why? Explain the position they were in and why they didn't step up to their responsibility. Mary said she would love to hear from a man involved in all of this. I'm trying to think in all of my years, certainly doing doing this programme, I don't think I've ever interviewed a man who came forward and said, yes, back in the 60s, my girlfriend got pregnant and I, I, I wasn't able to do anything or I didn't do anything. I mean, we're talking about a different society as well. I, I accept that. But yeah, if there's anybody who wants to share their story, uh, we certainly will give them a platform to do it. Thank you for that, uh, Mary. And then on uh, WhatsApp's Mossy in West Cork says, as regards the mother and baby scandal and the nuns, we need compassion. We need forgiveness and we need sincerity. He said, I'm as angry and disgusted as anyone with the powers that be. But we must also forgive ourselves and others. We don't want anybody dying before their time. Thanking you, uh, Trish. And that's from Massey in West Cork. And we know that Thetic is going to come out and do another apology on behalf of the state and some of the religious orders. I know last night were issuing various different press releases and, you know... I don't know how many of them were direct apologies I don't know but I know they certainly the, they were starting to talk last night following the report but you wonder rather than saying sorry do we is asking for forgiveness is that is that what the nuns need to do because it's very easy and it can be blasé sometimes to say oh yeah of course I'm sorry sure I shouldn't have done it and leave it at that but is there as Massey said, you, we, it's not just an apology, but it needs to be a sincere apology. But maybe, as Massey said, asking for forgiveness, maybe if the nuns and the church and the priests and those that were involved came out and actually asked for forgiveness. Because I think that's very different. Rather than somebody saying sorry, asking somebody for forgiveness, it allows then the person that you've hurt to decide whether they want to accept that forgiveness and then to accept the apology. Thank you for that, uh, Mossy. Hopefully you're staying safe. Patricia, those poor girls, is it not time to investigate? Was a crime committed? I believe that one at least had an intellectual disability. Shocking, so upsetting. The, the, the report shows that there were uh, young girls with intellectual disabilities and there was one story, I'm sure it's out of Besber, of a woman, of a woman saying that when she was in Besber, she saw a car pull up and a young girl with an intellectual disability just literally thrown out of the car. This, the girl was pregnant and was left by her uh, parents. And no questions asked as to how that young girl with an intellectual disability, how did she become pregnant? 1850 Patricia, what about the women listening today who never told their family or their partners that they were pregnant? How worried must they uh, be? 
Um, I don't know if they would be worried as a result of this uh, report. They might get some understanding of what happened to themselves and indeed to other women. And you'd love to think that that shame that was put on those women is gone and has been lifted and that if there was a woman who hid her pregnancy and a lot of the girls that went into the mother and baby homes over the years did hide their pregnancy wouldn't you love to think that as a direct result of this report because they have nothing to be ashamed of wouldn't you love to think that some of those women that healing will come out of this report and maybe they will be able to talk with their families and maybe they will be able to say to now adult sons and daughters that you have an older brother or you have an older sister and that I gave a child up for adoption because I felt that there was nothing else that that I could do. So maybe some healing can come out of it rather than somebody being worried. And I know the Adoption Rights Alliance and we are hoping to speak with the group tomorrow on the programme. They're looking for their records to be open because so many adopted people don't know who they are, don't know where they came from. And, you know, many were adopted by wonderful families and had great lives but there's still that sense of loss of who am I? You know, who's, have I any blood relative? Relative, Who do I look like? Who, where's my DNA? Where's, you know, medical records. Is there anything in the, in the family that I need to know about? And just a sense of being and, and a sense of place, I think, uh, as well. And I know there is a big push and I know it was, it was a recommendation as well in, the, in this particular report would be that adopted people would, would be allowed access to their files. 1850 Liz says, ours was a patriarchal religion and society at the time with no sex education and no contraception. Religion has a lot to answer for, says uh, Liz. Hi, another texter. I hope Ireland has progressed. It's hard to imagine what life was like back then. Women seemed to be a commodity. The church seemed to be all too powerful. It's not that long ago when mothers had to be churched after giving birth. If a child died, they were told, you have an angel in heaven, now go away and have another one. And that would have been a common common response by members of the clergy. I feel so sorry for all those who spent time in these so-called mother and uh, baby homes. And Joe in, thank you for that, Joe in Domanway says, how can you forgive those, forgive? How can you forgive those nasty, vicious nuns? It is despicable. Bring them to justice if any of them are still alive, says uh, Joe in uh, Domanway. Yeah, and then when people are asking about the numbers, you know, what's staggering in this report are the numbers, that figure of around 9,000, and that figure could even be higher, of children who died in the mother and baby homes. 50% of all children who passed through the doors of a mother and baby home uh, died. I saw in one of the papers today, they gave a list of the cause of uh, death. And uh, now I don't know if this is out, this this isn't out of... of, um, yeah, this would have been the cause of death of the of se- on just under 7,000 babies that died over a period of time. And when you look down through the list, top of the pile is non-specific. So the nuns didn't give any reason as to why they died. That was at 18%. That's followed by 14% of little babies who died from gastroenteritis. Uh, there was also 18% died from respiratory uh, infections. 
Uh, and 9% died from malabsorption and I'm sure malabsorption is to do with not being fed properly either their mother's not being fed properly or the baby's not being fed uh, properly I'm sure I looked into that uh, before and then also on the list oh this is interesting 6% of babies died from tuberculosis but when you look into say Besber and there was there was a department report done on Besborough back in the 40s and obviously they were starting to question the number of babies that had died there and there was a proportion of them died from tuberculosis and the report actually showed that the nuns, the, the mothers weren't allowed to breastfeed so they were given milk and they were given milk from cows on the farm in Besborough and the cows on the farm in Besborough were never tested for tuberculosis so it was that milk that was being used for the babies whereas out in the general public if you went out and brought a bottle of milk off the shelf in any of the shops in Cork at the time you could have been guaranteed that that milk had been checked for tuberculosis and would be tuberculosis free. So it may explain why babies died of tuberculosis, certainly in Besborough. And then others uh, in the list include congenital heart disease, convulsions, diphtheria, haemorrhage, influenza killed a number of babies, measles killed a number of babies, meningitis, 4% died from meningitis, 3% died from uh, spina bifida. So they're the reasons that the, they listed, but the highest number was 18% uh, non-specified. We don't know what the little ones died from. 1850 John Paul takes your calls. C103 Jobs. An office administrator is wanted for the Donnerail area. A good working knowledge of Microsoft Word and Excel is necessary. While pickers and drivers are wanted for Caulfield Super Value, that's in Riverview Shopping Centre in Bandham. Healthcare assistant wanted for Chuck Ultra in Newmarket. And production operatives are required for fabrication and glazing factory. That's in Mallow. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With McCroom Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See McCroomMotors.com. And just by the way, on vaccines, uh, listener uh, John says, thank you, John, for putting your name in your text. John says, Professor Staines said on radio yesterday that 80% of people will have been vaccinated in this country before we have, con- or we would need to have 80% of the population vaccinated before we'd have control of the virus. He also says that could take up until at least October. It is going to be a long, long year, uh, says uh, John. Yeah, I think the big game changer though, John, is going to be when the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine comes on stream. We know that they've applied to the European Medicines Board for approval because when that becomes available, that's the vaccine that GPs and your local pharmacist can administer, whereas the Pfizer one, because of the complication and the mixing of it and how it has to be stored, uh, there's only very set places that that can be administered. Uh, And it's going to be the same, not quite the same as the Moderna, but the Moderna, again, has to be reconstituted from the bottle and has to be stored. I think it's about minus 20 degrees, whereas the AstraZeneca one 
can be given to GPs. It's a little bit like how the flu vaccine is given out. So that would be a different picture. But we've got to wait until the European Medicines Board actually passes that, John. Failing that, yes, you're right. It'll be a long year before we have 80% of the country vaccinated. Now, as we've already mentioned uh, this morning, yesterday, saw the publication of the Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation report, which shows that Ireland was a cold and a harsh environment for the majority of women and children who stayed in the country's mother and baby homes. The five-year investigation was sparked by the discovery of a mass grave of the tomb home by historian Catherine Corliss, who I am delighted to say uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Catherine. Good morning. And Catherine, can I just start by saying I was thinking of you yesterday as I was reading through the uh, report and this country owes you such a debt of gratitude. And, and I know it's been said before, but I just want to publicly say it again here well, now. Thank you very, thank Be- you very much well, indeed. I don't really look at it that way. I, I know you don't. To, I know you don't. Terrible wrong. Yes. Yeah. And I'm also very aware of your inundated with, with requests for interviews. So we appreciate yes. you taking time out to talk thank to you. us here in Cork. Now, thank did you. you ever expect it would take five years to conclude this report? Uh, I didn't really. Um, well, it, it's taken it's taken me about uh, nine years at this stage. I think when I started research to try and bring this to the fore, I tried to bring it out locally what I had found out, and uh, didn't get very far. And uh, it was just one of those things that uh, people wanted to forget and push aside and kind of tell me it didn't matter. More to rooting it up for and leave let the babies rest in peace. But you see, there was so much more to this uh, story, and there was so much that wasn't right and so much suffering. And when survivors came on board then, I just realised what they went through and I just felt I had to be a voice for them. And that's really how I started into all of this. And I kept it going because today, though, it's a a good day. Yesterday, I was completely depleted when I heard the report, when I heard that the Taoiseach made a blanket statement that his society was at fault. And he kept saying, we, it's our fault, we, he was including everyone in Ireland as the society. And it was to me, that was... Just letting the people who were responsible, just kind of letting them off the hook without having to make any apology. But uh, just a while ago there, the, I was delighted to hear that uh, the Bond School sisters actually came out of the statement and they apologised profusely and they admitted what was, that they took part in what was wrong and that they uh, they were part of the illegal, well, the, the burials that were that, that have, we know now were illegal. And uh, that means quite a lot. That's, well, it's a great healing for the people that I've been dealing with. That's the one thing they've been asking for all along, that uh, that the church and the state and the religious would make an apology. They would acknowledge that what was done to them and their mothers was wrong. And that itself is a healing and it it's is. A, start, a start of a healing is. for them. The report itself, uh, Catherine, now I haven't read the entire report. I read a lot of it last night, but I had to actually stop reading it because I just found it such a harrowing read. Uh, I know. Pr- particularly the, the, the girls, and even though they were women who went to the commission, but in my head reading it, they were girls in, in many cases. All I could see was young girls uh, telling yes. these stories. Yes. It's harrowing, uh, uh, some of the stories. It, it's terrible. I mean, the it was hard for them to go in and give their story in the first place and to just recall and recount everything that they had been through and all the shame and all the hurt and pain. It was hard on them and trying to recall exactly. And uh, it was a bit disheartening for them at the time then that they weren't even allowed to get a, a print or a, a taped copy of their, of their uh, you know, of their account. 
to, to the people there. And a lot of them thought that they were going to be heard by the, by the judge and by the team. But instead of that, they were in a room with uh, people who took, who took their account and tapes. And uh, I, I don't know how qualified these people were that, that, uh, that uh, took on those uh, statements. But that was a disappointment to them. And they just felt again that, you know, that uh, they were being sidetracked. So um, yesterday then again, it was, a, it was a hard day for them because they were very, very disappointed with the Taoiseach's remarks and Rodrigo Gorman's remarks. And uh, it, it just... Well, today is a better day for everyone. Of course, that's of course. All I, can say. I mean, I don't know. Have you have you read the entire report? Have you have, have you had time? Oh, no, I no, no. Time but I've been on the phone yeah, most of the time. Any and any parts of it that you have read has any of it shocked you, or is this everything that you already knew? Well, um, people ask me that. All right, how how do I manage? How do I listen to people uh, with their, with their stories? How do I take all this sorrow and hurt and pain on board, listening to people and trying to help them? But uh, I suppose the way I looked at it is if uh, this person is hurt and if I can do anything at all to alleviate that hurt, that's where my focus was. Um, and that's, that's the way I managed all, managed all those years from the, the, the terrible evidence I came across. And uh, I just had to focus on what I could do. And that's, and that's how I managed it. And yet, while you are very much about helping the living, you certainly don't want to forget those that have died. You don't want to forget those babies. Oh, my goodness, no. I mean to say that's, that's paramount to, and I kept emphasising that, that they're in a part that I was being told that it wasn't a sewage tank, and it is. It's, it's the chambers of a sewage tank. That's where they are. The poor little things, and they're all over the place. And it's just the idea that these babies, they're, 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 I, a lot of them didn't have to die. The bond schools were, after all, a nursing congregation. They were, they were registered nurses. And uh, good God almighty, uh, so many babies died that, that just from little simple things. I know there was no penicillin at the time. I've been told that over and over again. But there was, um, I mean, uh, a bit of hygiene and a bit of care would have saved a lot of those babies. And uh, that was, I couldn't, I couldn't bear the thought of all those babies dying on their own and dying in dire circumstances and then being, being discarded in, in their death. And I think I just have to keep fighting for justice for them. And hopefully that will come soon, that they will be exhumed, DNA tested and reburied decently. And actually the, the tomb site, the one that kicked it all off for, for yeah. you. Yeah. I think people will be shocked to hear that. Nothing's been done to that site since. Absolutely nothing. Uh, back in 2017, I really thought when there... It was discovered through carbon dating that, yes, these remains were belonging to the Tomb Home era. I really thought everything would start happening after that. I thought, you know, my work was done. But instead of that, I had to keep fighting and keep with the media and keep the story out there. And uh, that's the only reason I do it, just to keep the story alive. And, uh, you know what I mean? I thought there was no notice taken. What happened was, after the excavation, sorry, after the test excavations and uh, every, everything was discovered, what they did was they took away the, the hoarding around the area. They brought back all the clay that they took off. They reseeded the grass. They left it exactly as it was before they went in to do the test excavations. Now, that, to my mind, was that, OK, we're going to leave this the way it is. And absolutely nothing has been done since in any shape or form. And now Minister O'Gorman tells us that legislation for to take those babies out of there 
that it'll probably be the end of this year before that legislation is passed. Even though it was started over a year ago, it has passed cabinet stage at that time and it has gone on to the Oireachtas. And now it's passed cap. They had to put pass it passing. Sorry, they had to pass it through a new cabinet again uh, uh, in the last few weeks. And now it's going to the Oireachtas. And the name of goodness, how is it going to take a year to pass that legislation? Yeah. It's just putting things in the long finger again. It's not taking, you know, just. It's just uh, discarding them again and telling us they're not important. It's not an important issue. But and you just want those babies, a Christian burial for those babies? Absolutely, what they didn't get. We know there were just, there was no, there was no little funeral, there was no priest available, uh, there was no priest there because there are no records. And I know myself through my, through my research that mainly it was the caretaker on the grounds at the time there was only one man employed there at the home. And uh, we know with evidence that it was he that buried a lot of ba- the babies. They used to whisper a little prayer in their ear oh. as he put them down. That, was, pa- that was part of his job? It was, of course, yes. Yeah, my God. Yeah. And and I know here our own uh, mother and baby home here in, in Besborough, huge yeah. controversy uh, and nobody and, and this thing of and even the commission highlighted it the fact that they find it very hard to believe that there's nobody within the congregation who doesn't know where some of these babies of, of are buried. Course they do. And I think I think it's absolutely terrible what uh, the the, the Besborough sisters have come out with that that they were society asked them to do this. That's the only statement they gave. That's their defence. And that is disgraceful. They will have to dig deeper and come out and apologise as well. And all anyone is asking them is, where are those babies? And I mean, I mean, how how can they do that? They're they're religious sisters, and how can they, they how can they literally tell a lie about it? So I, I can't understand that. I can't fathom that. On the one hand, they're you know the church preaches to us. You know, I mean, they'll, they'll say their rosaries and they'll go to mass, and uh, yes. Uh, the, the most vulnerable and the most innocent of all in Christian teaching that we are supposed to look after. So uh, nothing adds up with the with the, with the way they they carried on at that at that time. And they must they must come out as well and just tell people where the babies are. Yeah. Because that's all anyone is asking. And just let let a Christian burial happen. And I know the former former yes. Thornish, Joan Burton, who of course herself was was adopted. Yes. She was saying even before the report came out that this report should be sent directly to to the Gardaí, given the scale yes. of the deaths. It's yes. it's gone to the DP. Did I mean it's gone to the DPP? I I know I, I don't understand it, and it's it's very blasé, more or less, in the final report. I mean, surely to goodness, the commission could have done more to to ensure or, or just to compel the, the sisters to say a bit more. They're, 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 it's almost as if the Commission themselves were helpless in getting any information or pushing for information or insisting on information over and over again. I, I, I really think they should have dug deeper. I mean, they have a, they have a solicitor with them and I can't, really can't understand how they didn't uh, just uh, dig deeper and get the information because um, I got information... Uh, they're saying there's no information there, but I have I have scraps of information that they said they don't have in different areas. And I mean, you can get it if you really want to. Yeah, because they also the report also um, alleges allegations that significant money uh, exchanged hands, particularly on the the international adoptions, the ones to the states. But yes. the commissions they were unable to prove or disprove the veracity of the claims. Do you believe babies were sold? Of course, I do. They literally and, uh, were sold. That's what it was. Well, it was... I mean, of course they were. But, but you see, the, the nuns were so smart that they called it donations. I have letters thanking adoptive parents 
for their very, very generous donation after a baby is adopted from Joan. I mean, that's how they, that's how they covered it. Uh, how can anyone prove or disprove that? If that's what the commission means. My God. Yeah. Okay. So, so what? What, good, what yeah. now, uh, Catherine? For survivors, we're expecting. Is it an apology today from the Taoiseach? Well, we're getting the apology, all right. But how heartfelt will it be? An apology is grand, but it needs to be followed up uh, as soon as possible, almost immediately. By what's he going to do about that apology? He's apologising. What's he apologising for? He has to make amends. He has to make sure the government make amends for what they did wrong. And, uh, I mean, apology is a word, but it has to be followed up. Does that include action. proper redress? Well, whatever, whatever they need. Yeah. As I said, I've never really dealt with that end of it okay. for redress. But whatever the survivors need, they're entitled to it. Okay. Okay, and it's, this is not the end of the road for you then, Catherine? Well, I don't know what's next. We we, uh, we need to ensure that, uh, as regards to them and the burials, that has to be undone. That's the, a priority at the moment. And now that the sisters have admitted that that is, it is their responsibility, I'm hoping that they might help with funding to put into that and into the excavation and into the reinterment and DNA testing. I know they have offered something through Catherine the Pone at the time, but uh, we need a lot more. And uh, hopefully they will put their, their um, apology into action as well. Okay, and I can see lots of people just wanting to say well done to you. Let me sum it up with one fair play to Catherine Corliss for standing up and highlighting about these poor mother and babies. These girls were only children who were abused and and, and I think for me, Catherine, one one of the ones that I didn't realise, children, and they were children as young as 12. Oh my goodness, I know. I couldn't, I didn't even think that was possible. I heard that coming out today. I knew in tune the youngest was 14 was uh, a terrific, a child. Oh, and and well, obviously a child was raped. It's just horrific, and I know, I know a lot of the families were to blame as well, in in, in just pockets here and there. But the overall blame was definitely with the with the with the whole regime at okay. the time. And a final question for you from Tim, who said David Quinn of the Iona Institute cast doubt on the tomb septic tank in print. Has he ever apologised for that? Well, my goodness, no, and he never will, because they're they're very self righteous people. And they're still even, I wonder, will they take their sister's apology on board? Because I've had to fight, well, I've had to put up with that all those years. But I, I never communicated with them because I knew I had evidence. And, uh, of course, they tried to doubt me and to doubt me and to put obstacles in my way, which they did. But it didn't matter to me because uh, today is a good day. So now yeah. that's, uh, You keep you know, your head up and you rise above them, Catherine. You rise absolutely. above them. Listen, uh, uh, Catherine, once yeah. again, thank you. Our, our pleasure is always to chat with you on the programme. Look after yourself because I know how busy you. you are at the moment. And thanks thank a million for much. joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, no. Bye-bye. That Bye-bye. is uh, social historian Catherine Corliss, an amazing woman that this, as I said at the start, this entire country owes a huge, huge debt of gratitude uh, to the wonderful Catherine. Catherine Corliss. 1850 John Paul taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With McCroom Motors. Leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See McCroomMotors.com.
And I want to stick with the Commission of Investigation into the mother and baby homes because the Cork County Mayor, Mary Lennon Foley, was actually born in Besber in the 60s and she joins me this morning sharing her thoughts on yesterday's report. Good morning to you, Mary. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome to the programme. Now, I take it like a lot of us, it's, it's, it's gruesome reading. It's a very lengthy report. Have you managed to read much of the report so far? Um, I suppose I went in last night because I was on the webinar yesterday, so I listened to um, on Taoiseach and I also listened to Minister O'Gorman. Um, so I was kind of, after listening to that, I was kind of anxious to get into it. So I kind of opened it up last night, um, late-ish, and I kind of scrolled through. I was there, I went in from the 20s, the 30s and whatever, and I just decided the one that I suppose is more important to me personally in my story was Besborough. So I went into start on that and you kind of scroll down and you go into the different years and the different, um, the different, basically the different homes and the, the different um, categories that are there. So I went into it. It's 180 pages around that. So I got to about page 10 or 11 and I had to leave a go, Patricia. I had to kind of take time out because I knew I said, you need sleep and, you know, because I'm yeah. working from home in my own job as well as mayor. Um, and I just put it down after that. But it's there's just, it's shocking. It's just shocking. You know, it's um, personally for me, I suppose, as Mary, Mary Linehan and Mary Linehan Foley, um, there was some stuff in it that I would have been aware of because I met my birth mother 20 years ago and um, she would have told me some of the stories, that uh, her own personal story of Besborough and what she went through there. And then I would have got involved through Cork County Council as well when a motion was passed there a number of years ago. Um, in the groups, the certain groups around the country with the adoption groups, adoptees. So I would be involved with them um, on social media and stuff like that. So I would have been aware of some of the stories, but I suppose not the level of um, what's coming out in this, Patricia. And there's there's some stuff that I just, I suppose, even on a radio show, is hard to comprehend, hard to comprehend and to put into words. Um, Some of it is just stomach uh, churning. It is just, it's the abject cruelty of these women to other women that I found the hardest. Yes. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. And I must say, from 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 the start, really, with my own story and with my own birth mother, um, who's Rena, um, a great woman. She's seventy six years of age now, Brilliant. and I was lucky enough to find her. And again, I was lucky enough to have good adoptive parents in Yall, Maureen, and Paddy, who I had a good upbringing, and I was very, very lucky. One of the lucky ones. But I suppose from from my own personal story, how anyone could treat anybody like that is. Uh, it's just off the wall stuff. It's 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 like now we're in you know we're in 2021 and you're reading stuff and you're going God, that's the stuff from from films. That's like it, it's just unbelievable, unbelievable harrowing stuff, you know. Um, and again, as you mentioned there, how women could do that to women, um, you just can't get your head around it, basically. Uh, the, the one, if you can see any good coming coming out of this, um, I think for the younger generation to realise what Ireland was like, I think yeah. that's the one thing this 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 uh, report uh, will do. But what do you personally hope can be learned from a report like this, or can we learn anything from it? I think we can, Patricia. And again, 
I said this this morning even to my husband. I said, you know what? I said, if there's any good to come out of this, I said, now it's been spoken about. It's not under the carpet anymore. It's out there. The women are able are coming out and they're talking about their experiences. Adoptees are coming about, out and talking about their experiences as well. So if nothing else, people are now talking. Ireland is talking. Our Taoiseach is talking. The ministers are talking. And like at the end of the day, if that... That alone, I think, is something positive, Patricia, because if you're able to talk about something and it's not something that we're ashamed of, even though we are, we still, you can get some type of closure. But in saying that, the apology from Antishuk yesterday, I welcome an apology from anyone. I was rare to do that. If somebody apologises to me, Patricia, I take their apology because sometimes apologies are hard to get. But in saying that, I think it's now time now for Antishuk, Michal Martin, and for the government to forget about what they said are in the plans that they were going to do. It's now time to do it. The likes of the sites in Besborough that have to be excavated for closure for these women. The likes of the sites all over Ireland that have to be, not next year, it has to be done now. These sites are there. We all know there's planning in for the site in Besborough at the moment. That has to be stopped straight away until investigations are done. So to show these women and these adoptees that he means his apology and that the state means their apology, these sites, forget about who, what permission they need from anyone. We know they're the, they're, the, they're the law, they're the legislators, they're the ones that govern us and have been elected by us. So it's now time for me, Al Martin, and for the government to step up. Right, you gave your apology, we accept that, but now's the time to put your money basically where your mouth is and excavate these sites and look into where all these poor, poor babies are buried. Did you see the front page of the examiner today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unreal, that goes isn't down it? History. Yeah, that will, yeah. You know, we're in, we're in times at the moment, Patricia and I'm county mayor in my job side of it. We're in horrendous times at the moment with COVID-19. God love the health work, care workers and all them. But this, again, is another doom and a gloom yesterday. And even today, people are feeling it. My phone is hopping. There are people trying to reach out, but they are all happy that it's been spoken about. You know what I'm hoping that a report like this as well uh, will do is to remove the shame. Those women have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing. And it's funny you mentioned that, Patricia, because I rang Rena, my birth mother, last night. You know, she lives in County Waterford and... And she's, she's a gas ticket. She's a good, strong, strong woman, you know. And I rang her last night yesterday evening and I just said, well, Rena, I said, how are you feeling today, you know? I don't really know much about it. Now, Mary, she said, because she's not online and, you know, yeah. only what's coming out, she said, in the news. But she said, we were lucky, you and me. And I said, we were, we were, we're lucky. And, you know, I was very lucky with the parents I got. And I said, I'm lucky I found you. And, you know, we are. And she said, sure, look, Maybe maybe that'll be it now because she said there'll be too many people, you know, um, going into too many other people's business and stuff. So it's still there for these women. Yeah, I know, because already when I started talking about it, when I came on air at at 10 o'clock, I straight away had uh, a text in from somebody saying, what about the women listening today who never told family or partners how worried they they must be? They have nothing to be worried about because they have, but they live, they've lived all of their lives with this shame. And if you're living with shame, then you're worried that the shame is going to come out. Yeah, you know, yeah. they, these I, women got pregnant. It's you know, it's yeah. a baby was born. That's you know, that's nothing to be ashamed which of. Gift, which is a gift from God. Absolutely, absolutely. God. And like every baby that's brought into this world, 
regardless of the circumstances, are gifts from God. Yeah. I say that to my own children. I say it to anyone I speak to. And they should be cherished, loved and adored. And like when, when you hear, and my birth mother told me, the nuns used to say to her, make the women, make the mothers breastfeed. Now, you know, Patricia, and I know I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother. You know when you're breastfeeding your baby, you're connecting and you're, you have that bond, you know, and you have that connection there. Like, to breastfeed the babies would have been the cheaper option anyway, number one, if you think about it. Um, but then she told her, go into the city um, for a few jobs. They used to run errands, the girls used to, and come back out and your baby's gone. Is that what happened to your mother? That's what happened to my mother. And she she got mastitis afterwards and she got quite sick because of this. Um, and she was told, go into the room, have a little cry and you'll get over it. And how long, how long would she have been in Besborough with you? She was, she did, she got a job and she said this, she always says that she was lucky the job or the, the unpaid job that she got. She worked in the nursery above there and she loved babies and loved working in the nursery. And they, she stayed there for months after I was gone. I left, I was born in July and I was gone by the end of August. And So um, months. Was yeah. Three months then. Well, she was there for seven, seven, seven and a half, nearly eight months in total from the time she went in. And that was it until you tracked her down, you would you, know. And, and, and we, we've opened adoptions now, the few adoptions that are there, where there was nothing like that. There was no communication, no photographs, no nothing. Nothing, nothing. And I wrote to the um, Sacred Heart Adoption Society on the 2nd of November, 95. And I got a letter back saying, you know, about my details. And I actually found the letter while I went looking for it last night because I knew I had it. And what it says in it, it told me, my birth mother was admitted to Bedborough in March 66. Her name was given as Catherine. You were born on the 22nd of July 66 at 12.10. I never knew when I was born, what time. Obviously, when I met my birth mother, I did, because she told me it was a Friday. And they said, get the child out of you now and you'll have your lunch. It's fish and chips today. It's Friday. And like the doctor put his head in around the door whoever, whatever doctor was on call and one of the nuns that was there said, no, she's doing fine, she'll be okay you carry on, and she said come on now Catherine, get that baby out and you'll be able to have your lunch um, today, you know so it told me that I was full term, normal delivery that was it, we're looking, we're tracing at the moment, can you send a donation to help us um, of £30 which I did um, you will appreciate we have many inquiries of a similar nature and each has to be dealt with in a personal level. I will call to the address we have on record when I'm next in the area and let you know how I get on. In the meantime, I would like to talk to you about possible consequences of your search. Um, that if they do find my birth mother and she doesn't want contact with me, that's it. There's no more search. How long did the search take? Oh, years. Years and years and years. Yeah. Wow. I, like back then, um, I suppose after that, it would have been about definitely two, two and a half years that you keep ringing. Yeah. You keep ringing. But like, I, I found these documents last night that I knew I'd put them away. And, you know, I've met Rena, so my story's a good story. Yeah, you've had a happy ending. Some but yes, some of them have. haven't. Some of them haven't. But some of them haven't. But the obstacles okay. that are there need to be removed. Yeah. yeah. They need to open these files. They need to give people closure. And they need to help. Like, Again, he's a, the Taoiseach is apologising today, um, and that's good, you know, as I said. But at the same time, when you're apologising, you make sure, which we know now, because society, religious orders or anyone else won't let this happen again. And, you know, 
in my job, I suppose, I look at the broader picture too, Patricia, and I try to take my personal side out of it. There's bad apples everywhere you go in, the, in walks of life, everywhere, you know? I would be a Catholic, I would be a church goer, I would have my faith, and I still have my faith because I was brought up that way. But back then, like there is in every walk of society, you have bad apples and then you have the good apples. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Listen, uh, your, your birth mum, Rena, and your adoptive parents, Maureen and Paddy, can be very proud of you. You're a mighty woman. Long may you continue. And thanks a million for taking time out to talk to us today. Thank you very much. God bless. Take Thank care. You. That is the Mayor of uh, County Cork, the wonderful Mary Lenehan Foley. Cork today on C103. With McCroom Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See McCroomMotors.com. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Lots of your calls are coming in to us on the Commission of Investigation to Mother and Baby Homes. By the way, somebody was texting earlier saying, how can you read the uh, report? Uh, if you go on to gov.ie and then click on publications and you'll find the final report of the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes and you can download it there. i just let you know it is almost 3,000 pages long uh, so and it is quite, quite a harrowing read but it's available. Just go to gov.ie and then when you get onto the opening page of gov.ie just click on publications. Um, Eddie, this is back to the Commission. Uh, not all nuns were bad, said Eddie. A generation of nuns did not understand what went on at the time. Uh, many were thrown into convents and saw these women coming in and saw these women having babies knowing that they would never be able to have babies themselves and for that reason they took it out on some of these uh, girls. There was forced vocations as what Eddie is talking about. There was families who loved the idea of having a priest or a nun uh, you know the vocation whether they had a vocation or not now some people had genuine vocations but not everybody did and he said he's not condoning what happened in any way but he said it might be an explanation as to why some of these nuns seem to be so vicious to some of the girls. Could it have been that they never really had a true vocation and they never should have been in the convent in the first place? It is very possible. Uh, Eddie, thank you for that. Uh, Maria said, did anybody read the book uh, The Light in the Window? It was about Besborough. It highlighted what happened uh, there. The lady who wrote, I can't remember that lady's name because I interviewed her. She was, uh, she worked as a, a nurse, a night nurse there. And, um, and she had great kindness she tried her best to highlight what was wrong with Besborough, but she couldn't stand up to the nuns either. I can't remember that lady's name. She, the ladies, she was from, wasn't she originally from North Cork, the light in the window? But yes, I remember the book coming out and I remember doing an interview on it at the uh, time. Ken in Glamour says, I find it hard how an apology will change anything, especially apology from leaders of today. Many of the leaders of today were children at the time of what went on in Besborough and a lot of these mother and baby homes. What will the apology mean? Well, I think it's it's what they do. That it's all the time. Whenever there's an an apology, whenever any government minister or a minister or a prime minister or a president makes an apology, they're making an apology on behalf of the entire nation, to and just acknowledging. I think the apology acknowledges the hurt that went on. I think that's why. Yeah, but they're they're not personally apologising. They're apologising on behalf of the uh, state. Colm and Bottevent, when I was mentioning the list of causes of death of the babies in the mother and uh, baby homes, Colm says over the years he's done a lot of uh, research into how babies died and he said all babies, not only those in institution but across this entire country died from similar illnesses and this is something we just have to live with. Yeah, but hang on now Colm, I'll pick you up on that. It, it was the death 
the death rate, the numbers of babies who died in the mother of in the mother and baby homes, they were at one stage they were twice the rate. You doubled your chances if you were born in a mother and baby home in some years of dying than you would if you were born in the in the out in the general uh, community or born in wedlock as it would have been in uh, those days. So I don't think it's fair to say absolutely babies died uh, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, babies, God knows, babies still die uh, today. But the question that has to be asked is why was there such a huge proportion of babies? 15% of all of the children that were born in mother and baby homes uh, from the 1920s right up to the 1990s died. You can't say 15% of all babies born in this country died because they didn't, as they say, on some of the years, twice the rate of babies, infant mortality was twice the rate inside in the mother and baby homes as was out in the general community. So no, I'm not, I'm certainly not accepting uh, that uh, argument. Martin in Mitchestown says the brothers in schools did awful things the same as the nuns. Yeah, but I, I think you're talking about industrial schools and what happened in normal schools. What we're talking about today is something uh, extremely uh, different. But thank you for your call, uh, Martin. Anne says on mother and baby homes, I think it's very important to find out about your parents. This is on the adopted children who just can't get information because people could be married to their brother and sister. It cause all kinds of problems uh, if you don't know where you came from, if you don't know your lineage, if you don't know your uh, roots. Hi, uh, Patricia. No wonder people gave up going to mass. What they did to those girls in the in Mallow, that was the orphanage in Mallow, was absolutely disgraceful. Another book that somebody is suggesting is Heidi said, Heidi said, I once read a book called Banished Babies. It shows that just after the Second World War, the trade of babies been sent to the USA. It brought in over 50 million dollars for nuns. But the one thing was it did save many of these babies as the death rate dropped. But it was a very, very hard read, says uh, Heidi. 1850 Thank you. June Goulding was the name of the lady who wrote that light in the window. Thank you. I knew it would come to me eventually. Uh, she's from Kent, she was from Cantor. She was, yeah. And I interviewed June and just a remarkable, remarkable woman. She really was uh, um, in, incredible. Uh, OK. The, so Meg says, the religious sat down to lavish meals while those that were paid to look after them were fed slops. That was the reality in some of the mother and baby homes. Tim says, more than once, a priest and a member of Vanguarda Shikona came to the door of a single pregnant girl and took her away. Will there be an apology from former Garda commissioners, perhaps still living? The force of law and order, order that had to deal with the Kerry babies and invented part of that. And what about the ex-Garda, Magella Moynihan? And... The male guard who fathered the child, he got away scot-free. That's a really good example, actually, of how when so many people are bringing up about the fathers, look what happened to Magella Moyne and she bought out a brilliant book uh, before Christmas uh, as well. Were the guard complicit in kidnap or worse, says uh, Tim? Well, it seems the report has gone to the DPP. Let's see what the DPP comes back with. Someone else says, so sad listening to some of the mothers today, just wondering, did the fathers of these babies ever apologise to those uh, women? Were they ever 
held accountable. It was their baby too. It was the poor woman who suffered all on their uh, own. Ger says there should be an apology made at every mass in the country for the part that the church played in this scandal. Now that the uh, report is out, it's an atrocity, said Ger. We should have an apology at every mass this uh, Sunday. Well, there's no masses this Sunday. Well, they're all online, I suppose. Yeah, you could do it online. And John and Carrie Gallines, oh, that's on a different issue. That's all. Is that all the mother and baby ones it is? Okay, 1850-333-103. Just let me get to some other different issues that are coming in uh, to us. On the driving licence, the listener says, my licence expires at the end of the month. I have an appointment next week, but because of the travel restrictions, I can't go. I have a PPS card, but do not use email, so I cannot apply online. I spent the last week phoning the number on the NDLS but the phone seems switched off or else they are not manned. Okay, you can travel outside of your 5k to go to your NDLS if you have an appointment like that that's deemed an essential journey. Just bring your text message or your letter with you, whatever you have from the NDLS to show that you have an appointment. And if you stopped, if there is a checkpoint and you stopped, you can show them that, that you are going. So yes, you are. You can still go. They are asking people to do it online, but obviously you're in a position that you can't do it online. So certainly, yes, if you have an appointment, you can turn up. Uh, 1850-333-103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 C103 Cork Diary with Cork County Council supporting businesses supporting communities serving Cork visit corkcoco.ie The staff of Daily Industrial Supply Company they are hoping to collectively run, walk, cycle, hike and swim a total of 1,200 kilometres they're doing this during the month of January and it's an effort to raise money for the Cork Simon community you can donate through their Just Giving page now that's the staff of Daily Industrial Supply Company. If you've got anything that you would like us to include on our community diary, please contact us. The service is free of charge and you can email the information to info at c103.ie. And if you are a soccer fan, don't forget to join Trevor Welch on c103.ie this Saturday for the Premier League Live exclusively online and it's powered by Talk Sport. Now this Saturday, it's Wolves versus West Brom. That's at 12.30. Then West Ham are taking on Burnley. That's at 3 o'clock. There's a 5.30 kickoff for Fulham versus uh, Chelsea and then Leicester City will take on Southampton that will be at 8 o'clock on Saturday at night Premier League live online with Now TV St- Steam pa- Steam stream live Premier League action with Now TV Sky Sports our Sports Extra Pass listen every Saturday on the C103 app or you can go to c103.ie Court today on C103 with McCroom Motors leading the way for Toyota hybrids the place to order your 211 Toyota see McCroomMotors.com now, the massive surge in patient numbers that led to ambulances queuing up outside Letterkenny University Hospital could be replicated around the country on a regular basis. That's according to healthcare workers at the COVID-19 coalface. One of those workers is Dr. Jason Vandervelt, well known for his work uh, with the West Cork Rapid Response, who uh, joins me. Uh, good afternoon to you, Jason. Afternoon, Patricia. How are you keeping? I'm, I'm keeping very well. And more, more as a point, how are, how are you and the rest of the gang um, in the health service doing? Well, I, I suppose it wouldn't be an understatement to say this has probably been one of the most challenging weeks that I've had in nearly 29 years of healthcare. Um, 
I suppose, yeah, look, we've always been busy. Um, we've always been overcrowded. And I suppose, yes, look, I've worked in Africa with absolutely no resources. And I've worked with loads of resources. And I've managed countless major incidents and horrific accidents over the years with multiple deaths. But I've never encountered such a disease which has just divided humanity and just stripped us of community. And um, COVID just look, it's, it's just stripped us the basic human touch. It's put neighbor against neighbor. It's broken families uh, and installed such fear. And I suppose all of that then challenging us ethically with what we're able to provide or not be able to provide. And then on top of that, it's killed off colleagues. So um, how am I doing? Sure, as, as well as I could. And is that a big, real, real challenging concern for you, the fact that you could face, you and your colleagues could face a situation where one day you're going to be looking at a, an 80-year-old woman who needs a ventilator and a 35-year-old father of three who needs a ventilator trying to decide who gets it? Uh, it's never that black and white, Patricia. The um, ethics on this, well, we, we, we do ethical decisions every day. That's, that's, that's the norm. That's being realistic and that's, that's healthcare for you. Um, I suppose, you know, we've done so much good prep work over the year um, at CUH. There's an awful lot to be thankful about. Um, and whilst those sort of stark ethical decisions aren't being made, as stark as that, you know, I think it's fair to say that um, we... It's... Look, this 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 disease is having somebody come to you, uh, chatting to you. I'm not feeling great, and then within an hour, is is at death's door. And you know, I, sp- I suppose we've we've trained so many years and and been so overcrowded for so long um, in, in the Irish Health Service that we're so used to making those sort of decisions that I think we're ready for it. We're okay with that. It's 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 been logical, but we haven't got yet to that stage of um, that they were they're doing in the states. But we're very very close to it. What condition is Cork University Hospital in uh, in today? What's the capacity like there today? No, I'm not I'm not one to know the numbers off by heart. I mean, okay. that, that would be somebody in management that would be able to answer that um, for you. But uh, look, we're we're coping. You know, and if you are sick and you need to come in, we'll, we'll be here for you. We're always here for you. Um, and and we, will, we will cope. Um, but, I mean, it's true to say that, you know, really, we do, we do need to look after each other, and we do need to get that sense of community back, you know. Um, and I think, Patricia, the, the worst part of this, as I said, is, is, is this disease challenging each other, um, you know, neighbour against neighbour, family against family. Um, and there's so much negativity and anger at the moment and blaming. And I just feel that if, if we allow ourselves to dwell in all those numbers now, COVID is one. Um, and I've always said this, now's the time for community. Now, now's really the time for community. Because if, we, if you really think about it, and there's a few things that I'd, and I'd like to actually not talk about the negative pressure if I can. I'd, okay, I'd like yeah. to talk about okay, t- but, but talk to me, well. talk to me about uh, community and, and, and what, what are you saying to people? Help out neighbours or keep away from neighbours? You know, okay. stay, we, stay we apart. We have to stay home now. We yeah. have to listen okay. to public health advice. 
But just because you're staying away from your neighbor doesn't mean you can't pick up the phone. Okay. Just because you're staying away from your neighbor, if you're able to go to the shops and can do the shopping, go and do the shopping. You know, um, it, it's time to be positive. There's so much that we can be positive about. We're in such a deep, dark hole right now. But there is light. We, we're coming out of that. We're going to come out of this. And we're going to come out of this either strong or we're going to come out of this fighting each other. And I know which way I'd rather be. Yeah, I, I heard of a, of a friend of mine who was cooking dinner and uh, realised she'd cooked more, typical Irish. Uh, so she plated up a dinner and she popped it down the road to an elderly gentleman who lives on his own, just literally rang the doorbell and ran away. And when she was out of the gate, he opened the door and said, there's dinner for you. And it was just such a simple, kind Absolutely. gesture for a man who lives on his own. Absolutely. You know, this is a time for Mehel. This is, let's, let's do what we, we, we know we do best here in County Cork. Let, let's Let's, let's look after each other. That's, that's my own key message today. Let's stop fighting. Let's stop blaming. Let's stop, you know, asking why and how. Look, that, leave that to the academics in, in time to come. Apportion blame with proportion blame in time to come. But right now, genuinely, we're in that hole. We need to listen to public health advice. We need to pull together and we need to do what we're best at, which is, 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 is think about community. There's lots to be positive about. You know, I don't think people are aware that the amount of work that's gone on in CUH in the last year in terms of infrastructure, there's so much to be thankful about. We've gone to single rooms virtually. Dignity is being restored in our hospitals. We've got space to do that. You know, we've no more trolleys because of infection control on the, on corridors. So there's a lot lot to be passed. And of course, the real beacon of light, uh, Jason, the vaccine. Well, yeah, I mean, the vaccine's there. You know, it's not that much of a, you know, it's not that much of a panacea. We've got to get everybody vaccinated first. I think there's been about 6,000 vaccinations done to date in Cork University Hospital. Um, So, you know, the the, the staff there on the vaccine side have done tremendous uh, Trojan work. We have a long way to go with that. but we need to get just get back to the basics and do the basics that we know work and um, just look after it. Look yeah, after and that's the hand washing, social distancing, the wearing of the masks. But but don't forget your neighbour. Don't forget community. That's, don't that's forget, just. Community, that's, don't forget your neighbours. Yeah. And Kamir, how are staff coping? Are they are they exhausted? Look, we're shattered, and I suppose one of the biggest problems is, is, is you've heard is, is so many staff have been away, and away for different reasons. Um, some have been sick. Um, some have been close contact. Some are obviously looking after, um, you know, their own families, and um, that's very difficult. You know, we've got a lot of people who've been redeployed. Thankfully, um, we have done a lot of organisation around the house. You know, just in terms of elective work, which has been curtailed. You know, focusing now on the emergency work, which has to happen. Um, but we are very short-staffed. Um, but we, we will cope. We will look after you. There, there's no there's no doubt about that. We you know if you're sick, we, we we're here for you, and, and we'll do our best for you. Um, I suppose the one thing that, that that's for sure is is is, is you know very thankful for is is, is family, um, our own families. And I mean, I'm thinking about my poor wife who's looking after and homeschooling five children today. It's well, I was going to ask, <laughs> how is your lovely wife coping? Because you've got, you've got young, you, you've a lot of kids and they're young as well. Yeah, no, they, they, they are, they, they're young. I mean, the oldest has just gone to high school. So. And how are they, how is she getting on? 
<laughs> she's doing what she always does and she's just amazing at it and I just don't know how she does it well done well done and there's a lot of women there's a lot of women behind all the great men uh, keeping, the, keeping the houses uh, going uh, for sure alright listen uh, Jason I'll let you get back to work and the West Cork Rapid response how, how are they getting on? So funnily enough, like we've, we've actually, I, I wouldn't have thought it, um, but then just looking back at raw, raw stats, and I haven't even, look, I need a week to sit down and try and get my head around the stats at the moment, but, you know, we've actually had a busier year last year, despite the pandemic, than we had the year before. Um, it's just that our dynamics have changed. We're not going through so many road traffic collisions and so much trauma, but we're going to a lot more medical cases. Um, we've now, I think we're up to 30 boxes now, which are our own advanced paramedics and paramedics and, and emergency service workers, literally from Belguli to Iris, who are responding voluntarily as well. Um, and their call numbers are way, way, way up. Um, the guards are, of course, are doing Trojan work, and we've been supporting them as much as we can. Um, and they've been so phenomenally helpful in terms of community and, and looking after the vulnerable and responding to cardiac arrests themselves. And there's lots to be thankful for. And I think let's just let today not focus on the doom look we're in the middle of it let us do what we do we can cope we'll look after you but please folks just stay home listen to public health advice and look after each other yeah and the best thing we can do is keep out of the hospitals by staying well and that's the best way that we can help you and the rest of the guys at CUH and indeed all of the other hospitals listen stay safe Jason a pleasure as always to talk to you thanks a million Uh, bye bye that is Dr Jason Vandervelt joining us from uh, CUH but of course also well known uh, the countless times we've interviewed him for his amazing work with the the West Cork Rapid Response 1850 333 103 hi Patricia I'm on a pop the PUP payment uh, in the first uh, lockdown I got 350 I've returned on to the pop payment but I'm only getting 350 now I am wondering why they changed the rate of payment back in October and the rate of payment now on the when it was first introduced the pandemic payment was 350 for everyone but then from October the 16th right up to the end of this month 31st of January 2021 there's a new rate and it's ba- based on how much you earned for example if you earned less than 200 euro per week the rate of the COVID payment is 203 if you earn between 200 and 299 euro 99 cent the rate of payment is 250 and if you earn between 300 and 399 euro and 99 cent the rate is 300 euro if you are an over 400 euro then you receive the 350 euro but that's changing again those rates are coming down again but they're coming down I think it's on the 1st of February but that's the reason that's the reason for it why you are getting less at uh, this time around which is a bit of a shock if you were expecting to get the 350 and uh, suddenly it comes in and, and you're not I can see some uh, questions coming in for Peter Dowdle Peter normally takes the month of uh, January off but he will be back uh, with us soon answering all of your gardening questions but just for people who are sending on uh, gardening questions hold off on them please and thank you when I mentioned about that uh, book the uh, a light in the window that was written about Besborough and I said it was it was a midwife who worked in Besborough back in I think it was back in the uh, 50s and I, I remembered interviewing I just couldn't remember her name and a number of people said it was June Goulding and she's originally or she's from Canturk. Other people are saying that her name is June Crotty so I'm assuming one is a maiden name and one is a married name but it was certainly June Goulding was what I knew her as when she wrote the book and I'm sure the book 
uh, candle in the window or light in the window I'm sure it says on that written by June Goulding but I'm assuming Crotty's either married or maiden name but thank you whole host of people uh, remembering the wonderful June uh, 1850 John Paul taking your calls if you want to text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Court today on C103 with McCroom Motors leading the way for Toyota hybrids the place to order your 211 Toyota see mccroommotors.com It's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Now, Alcohol Action Ireland, the national independent advocate for reducing alcohol harm in this country, has welcomed the legal commencement of new regulations which have been applied to some promotions that incentivise alcohol use that came into effect on Monday of this week. Ewan McKenney is Head of Communications at Alcohol Action Ireland and Ewan joins me. Good afternoon to you, Ewan. Hi, Patricia. Thanks uh, for having me well, on. Well, you're very welcome. Can you just outline to us what are the main changes that have been introduced this week? So there's three aspects of these new regulations which really aim to try and, I suppose, corral or curb the incentivization around additional alcohol purchases in the retail sector. Uh, so the first piece that people would need to understand is that you know where we normally accumulate loyalty points or bonus points in our in our multiples that alcohol will no longer be uh, accumulate you'll no longer be able to accumulate points on alcohol purchases for those matters or indeed redeem those points against alcohol purchases so it's kind of stripping away that idea that essentially alcohol is an ordinary grocery which of course we would argue that it is not and that's what this is endeavoring to do second part is that it is addresses the sale and supply of alcohol products at a reduced price or free of charge on the purchase of another. And um, So buy really one, is, get one free. Exactly. So like before Christmas, we, we, were, we were quite upset and annoyed at the persistence across the retail sector, whereby, you know, certainly in late November, we saw a lot of supermarkets offering slabs of beer and 
offering the second slab of beer at half price. Um, so that's a classic example of just how you're incentivized to purchase a whole other set of alcohol. And of course, that alcohol is consumed, and that is the difficulty. And the third point that is involved here is that those types of short-term uh, price promotions, which are both re- evident in the on-trade as well as the off-trade, you know, this would apply to, we say, um, restaurants and, and bars as well. So short-term price promotions would be prohibited. So you cannot have an offer that's like a flash offer for a couple of days around alcohol. So, you know, these sort of, uh, these three issues in themselves are, I suppose, modest enough in the context of what is an overall objective of trying to reduce alcohol use and the related harms. But we have to see it in the totality of what is a dozen or so measures that are emerging out of the Public Health uh, Alcohol Act, of which this particular initiative is the fifth or sixth uh, that has occurred now since 2018 when the Act was passed. Yeah, and as you explained, that they can't do the buy one, get one free, and, and they won't be allowed to do get you know six bottles of wine for 40, 50 euro, whatever it is. But it, exactly. does, it doesn't stop an off-licence an off license from having an 18 euro bottle of wine and reducing it at half price to 9 euro if it's a single bottle. No, it, it's nothing stopping them from doing that so long as they're not doing it in, in a flash way in, this, in, in you know in that kind of you know a three day offer type or a two day offer that sort of thing you wouldn't be able to in other words you wouldn't be able to stimulate extra demand from that way you'd have to consistently have it at half price oh, okay. that obviously isn't isn't attainable for the for the retailer but the, um, but the new regulations stop short of minimum pricing of alcohol products oh absolutely regrettably that is the case and there are, you know, just to briefly explain for your listeners, there are five or six key measures yet to be commenced within the Act, of which one is, is minimum unit pricing. Uh, and minimum unit pricing is very much part of this set of measures, plus the structural separation measures, which people will probably have started to notice in their supermarkets, uh, which came in last November. Those three things together are really about trying to I suppose, curb the demand for alcohol in our retail landscape. Um, but sadly, as I say, regrettably, the, the, the minimum unit pricing has not been commenced and nor do we have any indication from the current Minister for Health when that will occur. Um, so we're, you know, we're calling from him, from him and for the government to honour their commitments as outlined in the programme for government to introduce minimum unit pricing as a matter of urgency. The separation, Ewan, of alcohol in supermarkets, which I think came in, in in November, is that working well, do you believe? Well, I think there are, undoubtedly, there are, like like everything in life, there are some people who are very good at, at adhering to it, and sadly there were some who are not. And um, so it's a matter now of ensuring that the HSE environmental officers who have the authorised power under the Act to prosecute retailers who do not comply with the law. And remember, those retailers had two years' transition period afforded them um, since 2018 to ensure that they got their house in order in relation to that. So they, they really have no excuse for that. And I think that, especially when you look at the, you know, we know from the data, I just did something on this earlier today, we know that from the data 
of alcohol sales in the off trade that those particular retailers are booming. You know, the, the level of sales that are going through the retailers is enormous. You know, we've seen 40, 50, 60 percent increases month on month since the pandemic began. So the idea that these people couldn't afford to do this or that there was some dilemma in relation to cash flow just simply just doesn't buy. And, you know, again, they really have to be compliant with the law. And it's up to it's up to every community now to ensure that if there are retailers breaching that law, that they're told that they're breaching the law um, and that they start to come in line. But in general, I think most, you know, in particular, some multiples are excellent in, in what they have endeavoured to do. But there are some multiples who are particularly poor, and okay. that is not acceptable. Okay, and just one other point, you and that comes up yeah. an awful lot on, on this programme and has been since the, the pandemic. During all of the lockdowns, off licences never closed, or even saw no. their opening hours reduced. No. Uh, so therefore they're seen as, as an essential retail outlet. And a lot of the listeners to this programme are baffled by that, and I'm assuming you are too. I am baffled, and from the very beginning, like when we began to see this unbelievable surge of alcohol sales through the off trade, essentially what people have done is they have substituted their drinking activity in the on trade in pubs and licensed premises. They've essentially brought all that alcohol home, and we we have called as far back as last May. We have called for two things. One is that the the availability of alcohol in terms of the hours in which it would be opened, that that would be curtailed. And secondly, that the volume with which alcohol is purchased would be curtailed as well. Again, you know, your your listeners will be familiar that you you know if you go into a supermarket today, you you under the law you're only allowed to buy one packet of paracetamol. Yes, you can buy forty eight liters of alcohol in several trolleys and walk out the door. Mm. Um, So in the context of a pandemic, which is, you know, as we know, this virus loves alcohol. You know, the the chief medical officer... Tony Houlihan keeps saying it. ...has spoken several times in relation to this. Alcohol is a significant factor, the vector of the transmission of COVID, and yet we have consistently seen the government failure to do something about this. Now, you know, obviously they they have... endeavoured to close the, the pubs, um, which, you know, is, is, is a mute enough point for some people. But an endeavour in relation to this and the idea that it's fueling these social gatherings, which is clearly done over Christmas, this, this, this period has, has proven to be reckless, I think. OK, we leave it there. Uh, Ewan, no doubt we'll speak again in the meantime. Thank you for that and thanks for joining thanks, us. Tricia. Good morning to you. That is Ewan McKinney, Head of Communications at Alcohol. Action Ireland on those new regulations which came into force last Monday. And just a couple of things that we have been working on in the background uh, that might be affecting some, it's affecting other listeners just to let you know and if we get an update on it and when we get an update we'll bring it uh, to you. We've had a number of calls from people who are trying to apply online for driving uh, permit or driving licence or to you know get update their, renew their licence and you need, if you want to do it online you need to have a public service card. But we're very much aware that not everybody has a public service card. So Rita had contacted us with regard to her 19 year old son. When he, he doesn't have a public service card and he's trying to apply for his learner permit. When he rang the local office they said no they're not letting anybody into the office because of COVID-19 and you need to physically go to the office to get a public service card because they have to take a photograph because when you get your public service card your little photo picture of yourself is on it 
and you have to do that. You can't send in a picture. The picture has to be taken inside in the office. Uh, and because they're not doing that at the moment due to COVID. Rita's son is now caught. He can't apply for his uh, learner permit. Now, we've contacted the Department of Social Welfare uh, to find out what is the situation and see if we can get an update for Rita. But as I say, I mention it because it's not just Rita's son. There'll be others who fall into that category as well need the public service card in order to apply or to renew a licence and don't have it. And then Maria, one of our listeners was on, who's a resident of Milford in North Cork. She says, we've been without water since Monday morning and here we are on Wednesday morning. Irish Water have given no warning nor have we received any update. In my estate alone, says Maria, we've got young families, uh, elderly residents but first and foremost, we're living in a pandemic. We're all told we need to keep washing our hands. Also I'm a community carer. If you could shed some light for us gratefully appreciated we are checking with Irish Water to find out what is going on in Milford so for the good people of Milford hang in there and if uh, we hopefully we may get something back before the close of the uh, programme Hi Patricia this is on vaccinations when is the body system coming in for nursing homes so that we can hang out with our loved ones I thought both vaccinations would go hand in hand that's from Molly unfortunately Molly that's not the case the body system that was called for, was called for by Ty Daly of Nursing Homes Ireland. They made the suggestion, thought it would be a great idea and they thought it would run in parallel. But the suggestion has never been picked up on. I don't know whether Ty Daly is still pushing for it or not. The next time he, we have him on, I certainly will ask him. But it was just a suggestion made from Nursing Homes Ireland, but I, I certainly never heard, never heard Neffet are the Department of Health or the HSC say yeah it's a good idea we'll go uh, with that so I don't have an update for you on uh, that and then we had someone on about if I can find it here this is John in Carrigaline. Thank you for your text, John. John said, did you hear Paul Murphy, the TD, on about the bad decisions that the government have made by reopening up this country for Christmas and ignoring Dr Tony Houlihan and Neffet's good advice yet again? He also said Micheál Martin should apologise to the people of Ireland, especially frontline workers who are working in hospital, for the mess that this country finds itself in at the uh, moment. Well, says John, so say all of us. It's a sad day when Micheál Martin put the and the government put the economy before human life. It took Paul Murphy over 45 days to cop on and speak up about it yesterday. Maybe he was also in the festive spirit at the time. By God, we sure can elect the best of them. It seems to me like the good old reliable gravy train, says John in Carrigaline, not impressed at all of what's happening in this country. And something else that I'm assuming a lot of people will be be delighted to hear. But when I heard it this morning, I just kind of said... Is that a little bit too late at this stage doing something after the horse has bolted? And this is the news that all travellers arriving into Ireland will now have to produce a negative COVID-19 test. Well, not from now, it'll be from this Saturday. The passengers will have to have tested negative within three days before they land into this country. The test must also be carried out by a laboratory and rapid antigen tests will not be ex- uh, accepted. And that's got to do with uh, nobody knows uh, for sure sure how accurate they are so it'll have to be a proper lab 
COVID-19 test. Border management staff at airports and ports will ask passengers to produce the negative test result on arrival. Failure to do so? will result in a fine. The move follows strict rules being imposed on travellers already arriving from Britain and South Africa due to the emergency of the new strains uh, there. But however, yesterday the Cabinet agreed to extend the regulations on foreign travel to all countries as obviously we're struggling to try to contain the biggest outbreak of coronavirus since March and the biggest number of the rapidly growing number of cases in the world. Up until now, the government have been using the EU Commission's, you know, remember the traffic light system for international travel, but the requirement for a negative test will now supersede the EU uh, regulations for travel. Um, However, travellers from green and orange countries that are still going to use the traffic light system uh, will not now have to restrict their movement. That's if they have a negative test with them. If you arrive from a red country, which I've got to say is most countries of the world at this stage are still red on that EU traffic light system. They'll have to restrict their movement for five days on arrival. However, then after five days, if they get a test and they're clear after five days, they won't have to restrict their movement. Passengers, by the way, from Britain and South Africa besides having the negative test, still have to restrict their movement for 14 days, even with a negative test. And as I say, a lot of people will be glad to see that they're finally introducing that better late than uh, never. But the big anomaly in the middle of all of it, passengers can still fly into Belfast and travel across the border without being asked for a negative test. That's many of you today. Thanks to John Paul. Talk to you tomorrow at 10. Court today on C103. With McCroom Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See McCroomMotors.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.